recorded live. Hello, this is William Sink, ChrisTagenia.org. Today is Friday, August, I'm sorry, Friday, September 7th, 2012. The months are passing by too quickly for me. Today I'm going to present Luke chapter 14. I have a few things to say first. I, I've been engaging with um, kinists on Facebook. Kinists are, 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 are Judeo-Christian racists. It, it's incredible. It, it's all of their doctrines that they're very heavily Calvinist in their theology, and all of their doctrines are very heavily Judeo-Christian. However, they're racists. I, I don't understand how they accept Negroes into the body of Christ and then reject communion with Negroes if we're all one in Christ. Uh, I don't know. That, it's a very hypocritical is an extremely hypocritical position, except that it's very difficult to convince the kinists that their position is hypocritical. I guess Joshua Christ was right when, when he quoted, um, and, and Paul of Tarsus, I'm sorry, when he quoted the Old Testament. And um, where it says that all day I, I, I um, open my mouth to a hypocritical people, right? That, that's the, the, the children of Israel. They're a hypocritical people. I'm probably among them, right? That's the way it is. It's blatantly hypocritical to um, claim to accept other races into the body of Christ and then reject their communion. I, I can't fathom that. It, it's... Um, it's contrary to to reject the communion of a fellow Christian is contrary to all New Testament doctrine. If you accept that person as a Christian, that's the key in Christian identity. Of course, we understand that only the children of Israel were called by the name of Yahweh, and that only the children of Israel can properly be Christian. So we don't have any compulsion whatsoever to accept aliens. And we actually shouldn't, because we understand the commandment to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean, where it's talking about those people that we are to come out from among. The word thing in the King James Bible simply doesn't belong there. It's even in italics. It, it's pretty clear and, and, and pretty simple, and, and that Christian identity doctrine, and it should be a doctrine, is, is, is not hypocritical at all, and it, it's just pure common sense from a survival viewpoint, and, and it's, it, it meshes or, or, or um, blends very well with our spirits and the things of our heart. We don't have to talk out of both sides of our mouth because we simply believe what the Word says. Some people have been having problems with the streaming radio at Christagenia, giving out mid-program, which has forced them to listen on talk show or wait for the podcast. Theoretically, one, one of my servers, theoretically, and, and we know how that works with computers, right? Theoretically, one of my servers should support 128 listeners. And last week there were problems, and the peak was only 37 listeners, and, and some people had problems. Tonight, I understand people have problems, and, and there's only five or six people listening. I don't understand why the problems occur. Um, when I get home from this trip, uh, I'm not going to say that I'm going to do it immediately, but one of my priorities is going to be 
to revamp all of my streaming audio to add a server so that I have four and also to um, make sure that my live program, well, when I do you know, the Friday and Saturday night programs, to make sure that they play live on all four streams and, and maybe, um, that maybe people can pick and choose, right? And, and maybe one of them will be working. <laughs> Last week, presenting Luke chapter 13, a wide variety of topics were discussed. Among the most important, in my opinion, is that response of Christ to the apostles and their report to him concerning Pilate's having had certain Judeans, uh, I'm sorry, certain Galileans killed. And what Christ answered in response to that report. This is found in the first few verses of Luke chapter 13, and I'm going to repeat the first two verses. Then there was some present at that time who reported to him concerning the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And replying, he said to them, Do you suppose that those Galileans had been wrongdoers beyond all the Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I say to you, but if you do not repent, all of you likewise shall be destroyed. We clearly see that the tyranny imposed and the death of those Galileans was an act of judgment on the part of God. If you do not repent, all of you likewise shall be destroyed. The Roman government was indeed a tyranny. It was either Rome's way, or in many cases, it was death. Here we see Christ speak out, not against the tyranny. He did not speak out against the tyranny, but he spoke out and commanded the people who were suffering the tyranny to repent. As Paul relates in Romans chapter 13, and he's often criticized for this, and that's why I'm reinforcing that here tonight. As Paul relates in Romans chapter 13, government is but one way which Yahweh, our God, chastises his people. If we have a tyranny, it is a punishment from our God. It is the inevitable result of our national sin. And the righteous suffer along with the unrighteous. And we as a people need to repent from sin. Look at, you know, somebody might think, well, most Americans don't sin. Most Americans are good, upright, outstanding people. Most white Americans are good, decent people. But they're filling their, that their, um, they won't shut that damn TV off in their living room. They worship Negroes running footballs around fields every Sunday. That, that's a good Sabbath, huh? That they have that screaming rabbi in their living room dictating their moral and spiritual and, and, and political and social values to them 24-7 in most cases in the average American home. They accept homosexuality in their churches. They accept their preachers that preach that homosexuality is fine, that it could be Adam and Steve if Adam feels like it and Steve goes along. That they, they accept all kinds of decadence and immorality, and, and they have the libertarian attitude that it's okay as long as they don't do it in my house. And that's why they're being punished. The 82nd Psalm, Yahweh speaks to the assembly of the gods, how long will you accept the persons of the wicked? 
Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that not only they who do such things, speaking of sexual deviancy and, and the list of other sins, not only they who do such things are deserving of death, but also they who approve of those doing such things are deserving of death. So we wonder why we have a tyranny. We wonder why we live in a tyranny in America today. All we need to do is repent. That's all we need to do. If we have a tyranny, it's a punishment from God. Christ reinforces that idea in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. As is the case evident from Roman history, the more decadent we become, the more tyrannical the government becomes. That should be obvious from the last hundred years of our own history. We ourselves have no solution for this. There is no solution from us. The only solution is that which is outlined in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, which are called by my name, because God only cares about the children of Israel, he doesn't give a damn what the squat monsters and the Negroes are doing, and the Jews, and all the other ungodly bastards. If my people... which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, we have to stop accepting sin, even if we are not sinners ourselves, and, and most of us are in one form or another, but most of us are sinners in ways that aren't re really morally debasing to the rest of our nation, and turn from their wicked ways, stop accepting the persons of the ungodly, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's the only solution. That's the only solution we have for the predicament that we're in. In the meantime, we will suffer the tyranny, of course, and we know the outcome. With that, we will present Luke chapter 14. And it happened while he entered into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread that they were watching him closely. The opponents of Christ had been watching to entrap him since the time of his coming forth, as it says in Luke chapter 11 where it says that they were laying in wait for him to catch something from his mouth. Same thing our Jewish opposition does to all Christians today. Verse 2. Then behold, there was a certain Edomatous man before him. That word Edomatous is a, is a difficult one. I understand that. The, the King James word is dropsical. It's an archaic term for edema, E-D-E-M-A, which is an excessive accumulation of serious fluid in tissue spaces or a body cavity. 
And responding, Yahshua spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. Then taking him, he cured and released him. And he said to them, Of which among you should a son or a steer fall into a well, and you should not immediately pull it out on the day of the Sabbath? And they were not able to argue against these things. And that statement of Christ, that challenge of Christ that they couldn't argue against, was a direct challenge to the interpretations of biblical law extant among the various sects of the time. And I've quoted this before. For instance, in the writings of the Qumran sect, the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it is found in a portion of the Damascus document, labeled 4Q271, fragment 5, column 1, and I quote, where the Dead Sea Scrolls sect believed, quote, no one should help an animal give birth on the Sabbath day, and if it has fallen into a well or a pit, he shall not take it out on the Sabbath. Now, these people who Christ is addressing in Jerusalem must have been familiar with this Dead Sea teaching, with this Qumran sect teaching. It must have also been extant among the Pharisees, and Christ used his examples against them. And I go on with the quote. And any living man who falls into a place of water or a well, no one should take him out with a ladder or a rope or a utensil. So the people of the Dead Sea sect, if they saw a, a, a man in the bottom of a well on the Sabbath day, that they would not take him out on account of the Sabbath. They'd let him sit there and suffer for, well, well at least until the next day, right? There are many things in Scripture which are not written explicitly, but which are certainly self-evident. And, and I'm going to quote, I'm going to read the 110th Psalm. Yahweh said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Yahweh shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Yahweh has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. Sounds like the day of Yahweh's vengeance to me. Wrapped up in a type of the King David. This psalm is clearly a messianic prophecy. Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. And the beginnings of the law and the corresponding Levitical priesthood. Remember that Christ said, I'm sorry, remember that Paul said in Hebrews that where there's a change of covenant, there's also necessarily a change of priesthood. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, and he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Paul explains that in Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 12. Therefore, as the Levites worked to dispense the mercy of God on the Sabbath, attending to the sacrifices outlined in the Old Covenant, Christ also did that same thing, taking the role of priest, a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, to dispense the mercy of God on the Sabbath, albeit in a different and better way. That is how he has the authority to tell us that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath, which is recorded at Luke 6, 5. In Christ, each Christian man is also a priest in his own household, as Peter says in his first opinion, the epistle, where he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. We are our own priests in Christ. So that you should proclaim the virtues for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light. Therefore, not needing any other priesthood, there's no such thing as a Christian priest except that each man is a priest over his own household. The words Christian priest, you know, I search for these words in the writings of the, um, the early church fathers, they're called, the anti-Nicene fathers, the early church writers, the prolific bishops. I search for the words Christian priest on, on several occasions, and I don't find them until, after the, until the time of the Council of Nicaea and later. You won't find the words Christian priest in the earliest Christian writers. I, I haven't been able to. I, I could be wrong, but I've searched for them. They're not in Irenaeus. They're not in Justin Martyr. They're not in Tertullian, the words Christian priest, in the sense of a priest dispensing sacraments. Each Christian man is a priest over his own household. Therefore, not needing any other priesthood, there is no other authority but Christ which should rule over our faith. For this reason, even Paul told the Corinthians that he would not rule over their faith in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. So Paul was not trying to play Pope. And for this reason, Paul also told the Colossians in chapter 2 of the epistle which he wrote to them, and I quote from verse 16, Therefore no one must judge you in food and drink, or in respect of feast, or new moon, or of the Sabbaths, which are a shadow of future things, whereas the body, meaning the people of Christ, is of the anointed. So as Christ was, each of us, are the priests and lords of our of our own Sabbaths. Luke 14, verse 7. Then he spoke a parable to those who were invited, 
meaning to this dinner that this leader of the Pharisees was holding and invited Christ to at the beginning of the chapter, right? Noting how they chose the best seats, and that word protoclesia is literally the first couches. The Greeks sat and ate while reclining upon couches. They did not sit and eat sitting at tables, right? Saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, you should not sit down in the best seats, lest perhaps one more honorable than you should be invited by him. And coming, he who invited you and him should say to you, give place to him. And then you should begin with shame to occupy the worst place. You put yourself in the best seats and you're asked to move because you don't belong there. Rather, when you are invited, you go recline, go sit to dine in the worst place in order that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, advance higher. Or in other words, and, and that's a very literal translation, right? In other words, go to a better seat. Then it shall be an honor to you before all those reclining with you. Because everyone who is exalting himself shall be humbled, and he humbling himself shall be exalted. Those of us who humble themselves and defer to their brethren, Yahweh will reward them later. Those of us who exalt ourselves will certainly be humbled later. Verse 12. Then he also said to he who invited him, which was one of the leaders of the Pharisees, right? When you should make a lunch or a dinner, do not call your friends, nor brethren, nor your kinsmen, nor your wealthy neighbors, lest perhaps then they in turn should invite you, and it would be a repayment to you. Rather, when you should hold a reception, call the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you would be blessed because they having nothing to repay you. Indeed, it shall be repaid to you in the resurrection of the righteous. From Proverbs chapter 16. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. From Psalm 138. Verse 6, though Yahweh be high, he has respect unto the low, but the proud he knows afar off, he keeps his distance from, right? Or he keeps them at a distance. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, but Yahweh has chosen the foolish of the society in order that he disgrace the cunning. And Yahweh has chosen the feeble of the society that he disgrace the strong. And the lowborn of the society and the despised Yahweh has chosen, those that are not, in order that he may annul those that are, so that not any flesh shall boast in the presence of Yahweh. When we look at the application of that, we will see that he did indeed choose the lowborn of the Adamic world. He did indeed choose the the, the lowest family of the Adamic world at the time, 
as his people. That's the position that the Hebrews were in. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God. Yahweh thy God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because Yahweh loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, has Yahweh brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. All other things being equal among the Adamic nations, they're all white. All those Genesis 10 nations that were not mixed with the Canaanites, I'm not talking about Canaan. I'm not talking about the accursed children of Canaan. All of those Genesis 10 nations were white. And some of them were grown quite mighty by the time of Abraham. Especially Egypt, right? Which was the leading nation of the Adamic Oikumene, the Adamic dwelling place, the Adamic world at the time. But the Hebrews were despised. And they were the ones that Yahweh chose. That's the point here. All other things being equal, the children of Israel were a humbled people. They were in slavery when Yahweh called his son out of Egypt and compared to most of the other nations of the Adamic Oikumene, the Adamic world, they were very few in number. He did not call a rich and mighty Adamic nation, such as Egypt or Assyria, but a poor and humble one. That's the example he sets for us. Christ Christ wants to look he wants us to look upon our people in that same manner and to follow the example of our God. Don't exalt the exalted, exalt the humble. Don't kiss the ass of your rich brother. <laughs> Take your poor brother. and help lift him up. Even Adolf Hitler said that once. We'll see a few other things later. And one of those reclining together, hearing these things, said to him, Blessed is whoever should eat bread in the kingdom of Yahweh. So he, meaning Christ, said to him, a certain man had held a great dinner and invited many. And he sent his servant at the hour of the dinner to say to those invited, Come, because it is already prepared. Then they all began at once asking to be excused. The first said to him, I have bought a field. And departing, I have need to see it. 
I ask you, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I should go to inspect them. I ask, have me excused. Then another said, I have married a woman, and because of this I am not able to come. And appearing, the servant reported these things to his master. Then being angry, the master of the house said to his servant, Go out quickly into the avenues and streets of the city, and bring here the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Master, that which you have commanded is done, and there is still space. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the roads and parks, then compelling to enter in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that not one of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. This parable on the surface seems like a different version of the famous parable of the wedding feast, which is slightly longer and more intricate, given by Christ in Matthew chapter 22. However, while the general theme is similar, there are many significant differences, and we have seen sufficient other instances of Christ having used the same or very similar allegories at diverse times that we may accept that this also is a different episode and a different parable entirely. It has a different meaning. The Matthew chapter 2 the, I'm sorry, the Matthew chapter 22 parable is related after the triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem, the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. This here parable in Luke is related a short time before that event. The Matthew chapter 22 parable is given by Christ in the temple. This parable here in Luke is given by Christ at a private dinner. The Matthew chapter 2, 22 parable is given to a general audience of people and the priests in a public place. And this one is given to a more specific audience of men invited to a dinner in a private home. Therefore, it is entirely plausible that these are two different parables related at two different times, which just happen to use similar allegories. While all of the Bibles I have checked cross-reference this parable with the parable of Matthew chapter 22, they should not be cross-referenced at all. They're clearly two different parables. They only use a similar allegory. The Matthew chapter 22 parable, given to a wider audience, is ostensibly a parable about race, the man who didn't have the wedding garment. This parable, given to an apparently smaller audience, is about status. It has nothing to do with race. The men who were invited to the feast must represent those who were learned in the scriptures because they would have been familiar with the invitation and the calling of the scriptures. And therefore, they, invent, they represent the clerical class in Judea. Christ is making an example of the priests and lawyers whom he is together with at the dinner. We have read earlier in the chapter in verse 11 that everyone who is exalting himself shall be humbled, and he humbling himself shall be exalted. When those who should have known of the invitation 
were too involved in their own affairs to come to the feast. The feast was filled with the common and humble people taken from the streets, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The calling of God is not according to man. The calling of God is not marked by who is successful in the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. The lesson is the same lesson as that related in the verses before the parable was given, that Yahweh chooses the humble, the meek, the unlearned, in order to confound the wisdom of the world, and set it not those who have elevated themselves into positions in society. Verse 25. And there gathered to him many crowds, And turning, he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and woman and children and brothers and sisters, then also even his own life, he is not able to be my student. And contrary to the opinions of many, this is not teaching us to abandon our families. And if one thought that it were, then one would have to also accept that it teaches us to abandon our own lives in that same manner and act which is destructive and not edifying. What this is teaching us is that we must put our God before our families. And once we realize the will of our God through our coming to Christ, we must hate the things which our families espouse. And we must also hate the things which we ourselves have done or have espoused in the past. And we must turn away from those things. Once we turn away from the evils of the world, then we can learn from our God. We are able to be his students. The second commandment is to honor our earthly fathers and mothers, and we do not abandon it. But the first commandment is to honor our God, and that has preeminence over the rest of our lives. We don't abandon our families. We simply prefer the word of God and the will of God over the word of our families and the will of our families and over the things that we've done in our own past lives. And we have all done things that we've been ashamed about in the past. There's no doubt. Ephesians chapter 6 proves that we should not abandon our families, right? From verse 1, children, you must obey your parents in authority. I know that the King James says, in the Lord. For this is just, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it would be well with you, and that you may be a long time upon the earth. Paul said, honor your parents in authority. And therefore, we put our God first, obeying his will. But we love our brethren. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come behind me is not able to be my student. To see what this means, 
We must turn to the words of Christ to see how he described his own work on the cross. And I'll quote from John, chapter 15, from verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. You abide in my love. If you will keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Just as I have kept the commandments of my Father, and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you in order that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be fulfilled. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. A greater love than this no one has, that one would lay down his life on behalf of his friends. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come behind me is not able to be my student. A greater love than this no one has that one would lay down his life on behalf of his friends. You are my friends if you would do the things which I command you. No longer do I call you a servant, because a servant does not know what his master does. But you I have proclaimed friends, because all the things which I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And I have ordained you in order that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit would abide, that whatever you may ask the Father in my name, he would give to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So Christ both laid down his life for his friends on the cross. The cross that he told us to take up. And then he commanded us to love one another. Therefore, Paul wrote at Romans 13a, you owe to no one anything. In other words, we should never be in debt, right? Except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Every time I get the chance, I like to show that National Socialist Germany was a good Christian nation and that Adolf Hitler built his foundations on sound Christian principles. The sacrifice of individual existence is necessary in order to assure the conservation of the race. Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf. James Murphy edition, page 94. For me, and for all genuine national socialists, there is only one doctrine, people, and fatherland. What we have to fight for is the necessary security for the existence and increase of our race. Love your brethren and people, the subsistence of its children, and the maintenance of our racial stock unmixed, the freedom and, and independence of the fatherland, so that our people may be enabled to fulfill the mission assigned to it by the Creator, Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf, James Murphy edition, page 125. One more. 
Adolf Hitler, while speaking in while speaking of education in Germany, also said, and I quote, In the historical department, the study of ancient history should not be omitted, as the Jews have omitted it everywhere in America. Roman history, along general lines, is and will remain the best teacher. Not only for our own time, but also for the future. And the ideal of Hellenic culture should be preserved for us in all its marvelous beauty, speaking about the ancient Greeks. The differences between the various peoples, between Roman, white Roman, white Greek, white German, should not prevent us from recognizing the community of race, which unites them on a higher plane, like the kingdom of heaven. The conflict... of our times is one that is being waged around great objectives like the destruction of the white race. A civilization is fighting for its existence. Adolf Hitler understood the consequences of Germany's losing World War II to the Jews. It is a civilization that is the product of thousands of years of historical development and the Greek as well as the German forms part of it. A clear-cut division must be made between general culture, the general white culture, which shares many aspects, and its special branches, meaning the Romans, the Greeks, the Germans. Today, the later threaten more and more to devote themselves exclusively to the service of mammon, which is exactly where we've been since the end of World War II. To counterbalance this tendency, general culture should be preserved, at least in its ideal forms. The principle should be repeatedly emphasized that industrial and technical progress, trade and commerce can flourish only so long as a folk community exists whose general system of thought is inspired by ideals since that is the preliminary condition for a flourishing development of the enterprises I have spoken of. That condition is not created by a spirit of material egotism, but by a spirit of self-denial. And the joy... of giving oneself in the service of others. Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf, James Murphy edition. Pages 237 and 238. The Christian obligation is to lay aside materialism to give oneself in the service of one's nation. And to seek the good, to seek to do good for our brethren and our kinsmen and our race. Adolf Hitler
perhaps the last great Christian leader we have had understood all of this. And it is no wonder, it is absolutely no wonder that the enemies of Christ sought to destroy him, sought to destroy National Socialist Germany, which operated outside of the Jewish banking system. They seek to continually discredit him so that his social and economic policies are not examined and taken seriously by Christians today. If Christians followed his example, or if they merely put their Christianity into practice, the enemies of Christ would have no power in the world. Luke 14, 28. For who from among you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit to calculate the expense, whether he should have for completion, whether he should have enough for completion, that perhaps laying its foundation and not being able to finish it, all those watching began to mock him, saying that this man began to build and is not able to finish. Or what king going to meet another king in battle does not first sit down to deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to encounter he who with 20,000 is coming against him? And indeed, if not, while he is afar off, he shall send an ambassador who requests the things for peace. If we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, then we must prepare ourselves for it properly if we seek a reward. We are not going to be able to enter it without that preparation, or we will stumble and suffer trial for it. Verse 33. So then, in this manner, all among you who does not dispose of all his own belongings is not able to be my student. Now, that's a difficult passage for 99.9% of Christians. Here is the conclusion of the preparation. The conclusion of our preparation. If we truly seek the kingdom of God, then we must count our property and our blessings which we acquire from God as if they belonged to our brethren and not to ourselves alone. This is a hard pill for many to swallow, even in Christian identity. But if we do not help our brethren with what Yahweh our God has blessed us with, then we are not fit for his kingdom, as we see in the words of Christ here. Now, there's a verb translated to dispose of here. That verb is apotasso. And it doesn't necessarily mean to get rid of in the immediate sense. And the English word dispose does not necessarily have that designation either. Or I should say that connotation. Rather, the Greek verb primarily, primarily means to set apart or to assign specially. It can also mean to, to bid something farewell in certain contexts. So at the very least, Christian seeking the kingdom of God, 
should designate the use of their wealth, their goods, and their property to their brethren as well as to themselves. Verse 34. Therefore, good is the salt, but if the salt has lost its savor, with what shall it be seasoned? It is well fit for neither the earth nor for the dunghill. They shall cast it outside. He having an ear must hear. Well, if we amass great wealth and keep it to ourselves, or if we amass any sort of wealth and keep it to ourselves, the salt loses its savor. If we hoard property and goods, the salt loses its savor. That response is right to that, that verse 34 and the salt of the earth and, and the savor of the salt it is not disconnected from verse 33. So then in this manner, all among you who does not dispose of all his own belongings is not able to be my student. If we don't love our brother and share our gifts and, and our wealth and our goods with our brother, we are not able to be a student of Christ. It's very simple. From Luke chapter 18, we may gain a deeper understanding of what Christ intends here in Luke chapter 14. And I'll quote Luke chapter 18 from verse 18. And one of the leaders questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what should I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Yahshua said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except one, Yahweh. Know the commandments. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Then he said, all, things, all these things I have kept from my youth. And hearing it, Yahshua said to him, then one thing is left for you. All, whatever you have, sell and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in the heavens. Then come, follow me. But hearing these things, he had become very grieved, for he was exceedingly wealthy. Then seeing him, Yahshua said, How difficultly those having riches enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. If you're a child of Israel, all Israel is saved. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. And those listening said, then who is able to be saved? So he, meaning Yahshua, said, things impossible with men are possible with Yahweh. Then Peter said, look, we, leaving our own things, have followed you. Peter and his, Andrew, his brother, and John and James, his friends, gave up their family business, left it all, and followed Christ, right? And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left a house or wife or brother or parents or children because of the kingdom of Yahweh, who would by no means recover many times more in this time and eternal life in the age which is coming. If the rich man had followed Yahshua's suggestion, perhaps he would have had a great reward in heaven. Since he did not, while he himself shall be saved, his reward in heaven shall be little. 
for he cared for his earthly treasures more than for his heavenly treasures, more than for any possible heavenly treasures. That's the end of my Luke 14 presentation. I'm going to um, I'm going to address an email I got, which I received after the program I did a few weeks ago on Luke chapter 12. This might take me a second because I'm not really prepared for it, but I want to have a few things up here. Hello, William, or hi, William. Hope things are well with you. Got a few questions for you, if you don't mind. I've heard you say more than once when you went through James and then again recently in Luke 12, for example, that if a Christian becomes wealthy, it's because he has not paid his workers enough wages. I'm going to answer this question at the end of this letter because he goes back to this topic at the end, so I'm going to ignore it for now, right? And he goes on to say, in context, I see the wealthy being referred to are exceedingly wealthy, sephadra being the Greek word for exceedingly, and that's true. And we see that in Luke 18 of the man who had the multitude of riches and wouldn't sell them to follow Yahshua and give, them, give the money away to follow Christ. Or have a multitude of riches. And then he asks, wealthy and rich are relative terms, aren't they? And yes, they are relative terms. Wealthy and rich are relative terms. There's no doubt. This man is, a, is, is I count him as a good friend, and, and I know he's a good Christian, and he's been a long-time listener to my programs. But let me say that he makes his living selling precious metals to people as for investment purposes, right? So, so he has that, that um, bias in his judgment, and, and that's why he's seeking a, um, a, an exit here, I believe, or, or from some of the things I said, but I'm going to quantify the things that I've said, right? James, I'm sorry, first the parable. He's asking if wealthy and rich are, are relative terms, and yes, they are relative terms, but let's look at the parable of the rich man which we read when we discussed Luke chapter 12. The rich man has a storehouse, and he keeps his goods in his storehouse. But he has many more goods than what fit into his storehouse. So he surmises that he's going to tear down the storehouse, and he's going to build a much larger storehouse to hold his goods in, so that he can lay goods up for many years instead of the usual one or two. And that way he can enjoy the rest of his life. And when he does that, God tells him that he screwed up, that his life is required of him, and that others would enjoy his prosperity. Now, if the rich man had simply filled up his storehouse with goods for one or two years, then I'm sure that his life would have went on as it had been. And he may have lived a lot longer, right? That seems to be the inference in the parable. 
but because he had plans to take all of this abundance that God gave him and build a bigger storehouse for it, God told him that he was a fool and would take his life from him that night. And that's the way we should judge how much we need in order to conduct our own lives. If you have a storehouse and you can lay up a year or two's worth of goods and wealth in it, and you have more, you should think about giving it away. You should think about searching out your brethren who are needy and assisting them. You should think about searching out good people in the community who are facing bad times and helping them. That's the lesson of the parable of the rich man. It's okay, evidently, to have some provision stored up. I plant a garden every year. Well, well, I didn't do it this year, but I planted a garden every other year. <laughs> and, and we can. We can our tomatoes, and we can our beans, and, 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 and we can all of the good things that we get out of our garden. And we have a year or sometimes two years worth of all our vegetables stored up. We don't have meat. We don't raise steer and, and things like that. But we save up and can up the things that we have in excess from our garden so that we can have vegetables throughout the winter and, and into the next growing season. So, so that, that's one little way of storing things up. I, I mean, it, it's okay to have a few months' worth of bills in the bank. That's all I could keep is a couple of months' worth of bills in the bank. I can't keep more than that. that that's because I don't have it that way, right? But I do keep that, and, and I don't see a problem with, with, um, with that. But if I add a couple of hundred thousand dollars, would I keep it in the bank? Or, or would I search out my brethren who are needy and poor and, and give them some of it? Do I need 10 years' worth of bills in the bank? Of course not. We're not supposed to have provision. We're not supposed to take care of what we may eat and what we may wear. Isn't that what the parable says? That Yahweh will take care of us? We're not supposed to take care for those things? We're not supposed to really care for those things? So, so why would I need 10 years' worth of money, 10 years' worth of bills in the bank? Why, why would I need that money? If it's just laying around, don't I trust that Yahweh is going to make sure that I'll be able to pay my bills in two or three years and perhaps I should help some of my needy kin? Yes. Is wealth relative? Is it a relative term? Of course it's a relative term. Of course, if you, if you have $5 million, Bill Gates thinks you're a pauper. Of course wealth is a relative term. Do you need $5 million? You make that decision. It's between you and God. It's your reward in heaven. It, it's your reward in heaven that, that you're negotiating for or against. It's not my reward. So I don't care. I, I only know what the scripture says, right? If you seek a reward in heaven, you're not going to store up earthly riches. You're going to share and help your race. You're going to share and help your kinsmen, your brethren, those who are needy in your community, you're going to do those things if you seek a reward in the kingdom of God. It, it's that simple. This gentleman goes on to ask, and he's continuing from his first paragraph, right, where, where he asked me, um, 
I've heard you say more than once when you went through James, when I, when I covered the epistle of James here last year, and then again recently in Luke 12, just a few weeks ago, that if a Christian becomes wealthy, it's because he has not paid his workers enough wages. Well, that's not what I say. That's what James says. <laughs> and, and we're going to make this pretty clear right here in a minute. And he goes on to say that there are wealthy Christians who have not lived luxuriously and lewdly upon the earth, nor condemned or murdered their righteous opposition. And he phrases that as a question and asks me, right? And then he says, in Luke 12, you quote James again and make this comment. If you can amass wealth, you are shortchanging your brethren. Yeah, that's the comment I made, and I'll make it again. If you can amass wealth, you are shortchanging your brethren. And he asks, are you saying that if a wealthy Christian becomes wealthy, that if a Christian becomes wealthy, is it because he cheated his workers? And I would say that if a Christian who owns a business becomes wealthy, yes, he has cheated his workers, and I will get to that in a minute. That all wealthy Christians have withheld wages from their workers. That a Christian man only becomes wealthy because he shortchanges his workers. Well, no, that's, that, that's, that, that's a false argument, right? He doesn't only become wealthy because he shortchanges his workers. When we covered Luke 12, I quoted an Old Testament passage a couple of weeks ago. I don't have it in my head, but it was directed at rich people. It was directed at wealthy men, and God was testing those wealthy men and telling them not to think that they got that wealth of themselves. If you're wealthy, that wealth is a gift to you from God. Don't think, as I quoted from Deuteronomy, that you got that wealth from yourself. God gave you your skill and your ability to gain that wealth, to acquire that wealth. And there's a hell of a lot of very skilled and very able people in the world that still are poor because God hasn't blessed them with wealth. God gave you that wealth as a test. What are you going to do with it? That's your test. And the passage I quoted when, when I covered Deuteronomy chapter, I'm sorry, when I covered Luke chapter 12, I don't remember exactly what passage it was. It was from Deuteronomy, and it explained that very thing. That's exactly what it explained. Let's read James 5.1 again. Come on, those who are wealthy now, weep, crying out upon your coming hardships. In other words, if you're wealthy now, you're going to have hardships down the road if you don't dispense of your wealth wisely. Who is the faithful and wise steward? Think about this. Don't just give all your money away. I mean, that's ridiculous. Who is the faithful and wise steward? And I, we covered this passage in, in Luke chapter 12. Who at the proper times dispenses the, the things that the other servants need, the things that the rest of the household needs? So you be wise with your riches and be wise with your dispensation. Okay? You have to be a good steward. There's no doubt that's a parable in Luke 12, okay? Come on, those who are wealthy now, weeping, crying out upon your coming hardships. If you do not help out your brethren, you have coming hardships. There's no doubt. Either here or in the kingdom of heaven. Your wealth is putrefied. Your wealth is putrefied and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion shall be for a testimony to you and it shall eat your flesh as fire. 
I wouldn't want to be amassing gold and silver. I'm a Christian. If I can amass gold and silver, then I could give good parts of it away to my brethren who are needy. That's the way it is. That's the proper Christian attitude. Am I going to give it away wantonly? No. I'm going to dispense it wisely. I'm going to make sure that I have enough in my storehouse for my immediate needs, as the parable says, and I'm going to take my excess and dispense it wisely in its proper season, but I'm going to dispense it. That's the proper Christian attitude. You're going to dispose of it, and you're going to do it wisely if you seek a reward in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to test God and test that reward you might get in the kingdom of heaven and store up all your gold and silver because wealth is relative, and it's okay if you have $10 billion because Bill Gates got 50. Yeah, you know, that's the attitude. That, that's not a good Christian attitude. You don't need $10 million. No man alive today needs $10 million or, 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 or $5 million. Your gold and your silver are corroded, and a corrosion shall be for a testimony to you, and it shall eat your flesh as fire. You have saved up for the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers, reaping your fields, which have been withheld by you, cry out. If you can amass wealth, and you have people working for you, then you shouldn't be amassing so much wealth. You should be helping out those people working for you. You should be increasing their wages so that they could have more comfortable lives, so that they could take care of better, their children better, or so that they could have more children. That's what James is saying here. Behold, the wages of the labor is reaping your fields because you're amassing wealth, which have been withheld by you. Well, if you're amassing wealth, pay your laborers better. That's all James is saying. Cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have entered into the ears of the prince of armies. You have lived luxuriously and lewdly upon the earth. You have nourished your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who did not oppose you. That's what James is saying. It's not what I'm saying. If you're amassing wealth, you were obviously should be paying your workers better and maybe hiring more of your brethren and using that, 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 wealth that you're amassing to care for your community because it's a test from God. Don't think that you became wealthy on your own account. That's what we discussed in Luke chapter 12. It's Yahweh God who, who blesses us with wealth or, or with other gifts. And, and they're a test. And he wants to see what we're going to do with them. He gives us the opportunity to do well with them. Of course, he knows what we're going to do with them ahead of time. So that's my answer. That, that's my answer to this email. It, it's pretty clear. Now, now, should you, if you're a business owner, should you just give everything away? No, you should have a storehouse of, of, of a fair size, just like the man in the parable did, and, and save up the things that you need to save to operate for this year or next year. But when you do very well, and, and when, when you amass riches which exceed the size of, of that storehouse, don't build a bigger storehouse. Take care of your brethren. That's, that, that's the meaning of the parable, and, and that's what James is saying here. It, it, if you're getting rich, 
and, and you're not taking better care of your employees and the people around you, well, then you are murdering the righteous. You are condemning the righteous. If, um, if a young man has a family and two kids and he could get a, a 50% raise because you're getting rich, so, so you increase his salary 50%, well, maybe he could have two more kids. Or maybe he could send those two kids he has to college and, and get better educations. Or, or, or there's a million choices. But you help your brother. You, you don't amass riches. You help your brother. You help your kindred. You help your community if you seek a reward in heaven. Now, the, man, the, the young man with, with the excessive riches who would not sell his property and follow Christ, he'll be in the kingdom of heaven. But he won't have a reward. Paul said, if anybody builds on his foundation, gold, silver, precious jewels, or fodder and hay and straw, when his works are burnt and nothing's left, he himself will still be saved. Albeit by the fire, by the fire of trials. He himself will still be saved. That young rich man that wouldn't give away his wealth, that Christ told him to give it all away and follow him, and he was grieved because he was exceedingly wealthy, he'll still be in the kingdom of heaven, but he'll have no reward. He was tested with his wealth. Maybe if he'd have given it all away, just like Job, the story of Job, Job lost all his property, all his family, and after he passed his trial, after he didn't curse God to his mouth, Job was blessed with many more times what he had, what he had lost in the first place. So, so that's my answer to... Um, to, to my friend who had, had sent me that email. And that's the end of this program. Next week I'll be off. I, I, I beg you to listen. Um, Pastor Mark Downey is filling in for me. He will have Pastor Ken Lent, and they're going to be talking about a, a, a topic that's actually a, um, a, 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 a one that I wish I could listen to myself. It's um, the Constitution Christian. And they're going to be talking about the and, – and we know the United States Constitution is not perfect. Any document of man is going to have flaws. But the United States Constitution was based on Christian principles in a Christian society. And, and that's what they're going to be talking about next week. Tomorrow night I'll be here with Sword Brethren. We'll be talking more about the, the Mark Webber document and the treachery of Franklin Roosevelt before the United States entered the war, and how Roosevelt helped engineer and force the United States into the war, and force war in Europe, which is exactly what the bastard did uh, on behalf of the Jews, there's no doubt. It's one of the greatest crimes in history. It's too bad we had a, um, an entire generation of military staffed by cowards. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.